Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the DeWitt campus of Redeemer Church. Huh? Today's the day, folks. Um, we are officially one church in two locations, and it's in a very exciting time for the life of the church. Um, God has placed before us this opportunity to be, to be in opportunity to be in ministry in two faith communities, both in DeWitt and in St. John's, but that is so much like God in our lives, isn't it? The more we remain faithful, the closer we follow God's calling in our lives, the more God calls us to a grander vision and a grander mission in, the, in our lives and in the world. Today we gather together as one church in two locations, one body of Christ, one body of Christ, with one Savior. We gather to lift our voices in praise, we gather to lift our hearts in prayer, and we gather together to open our lives to Christ's calling. We gather together to encounter God in this place with each other, the ecclesia, the, the assembly of God's people, the church. Today is a day of new beginnings, not only for our faith community, but also as individual followers of Jesus Christ, because as we open ourselves to the life-transforming power of God, he works in our lives anew. Let's pray together. Holy God, today we come into this place prepared to meet you here. Open our hearts and minds to your presence. Work in us anew today. Let this be a day of new beginnings, a new start for our experience of the love and life of your son, Jesus the Christ. And it's in his name that we pray and everyone said, amen. Today is the first day of our new teaching series titled Boiling Point. And it may come as a surprise to some of you, uh, but Jesus was not always this soft-spoken, gentle teacher. In fact, Jesus often got angry and he actually yelled at a lot of people. And you may be saying, that's not my Jesus, that's not the Jesus I remember, but in reality, Jesus was a very emotional person. But you have to remember also at the same time that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. And also we have to remember that exclamation points in text have a meaning. And the Gospels are full of Jesus saying things with exclamation points. And so through the month of July, we're going to look at five specific actions or reactions that took Jesus to his boiling point, five things that infuriated our Savior, five things that miffed our Messiah. And as we explore these things that took Jesus to his boiling point, we'll realize that Jesus' anger is not simply a warning to our life of faith, but it's also an opportunity to see how we're called to live in a better and different way in our life of faith in our world. Let's pray together for just a moment. God, be present in our prayers and in our praises this day. Move in our hearts and our lives. Meet us where we are today, but don't leave us the way that you found us. Invade our hearts, invade our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and everyone said, amen. When I, when I say he loves to watch movies, I mean he loves to watch one movie over and over and over and over and over again. It's gotten to the point that uh, when we borrow a movie from the library, I don't even sit down and watch him with him anymore until you know, maybe around the 10th or 12th time through. You know, wait until I can tell if it's worth sitting down and spending the time in because I know I'm going to listen to it so many times. One of the more recent videos that he watched 
what seems like a hundred times is the movie Inside Out. For those of you who have not seen the movie Inside Out a hundred times, as I have, um, it's about a little girl and her emotions and her memories. At the beginning of the movie, there are some specific, specific emotions associated with the memories and these core memories and their joy and sadness and fear, disgust and anger. But by the end of the film, the emotional characters realize that some memories can have multiple emotions. You can be happy, sad, or fearfully angry and the like. Somewhere around the 30-second time listening to the movie, I started to think about this character of anger. And now the primary character in the storyline is, of course, joy, but anger um, wields its fiery head repeatedly in the story, literally wields its fiery head in the story. And it's often viewed as as a negative response or an overreaction in the film, as it is often in our lives. This thought process resurfaced on this character of anger a few months ago as I was taking my kids to school and daycare, and I was dropping off my four-year-old, and he said to me, Daddy, I love hate you. (laughs) Aw, who said aw? I was taken aback, and as I told him, uh, as I took him out of his car seat, I did the right thing. I asked him, buddy, what do you mean? What do you mean you love, hate me? And, and he said that, um, he said that he loves me, but that sometimes I make him angry, and he doesn't like it. And I said, well, what would I do that makes you angry? And he says, you don't give me dessert every day. And so I was like, okay, well, I wanted to laugh at that, and I was okay, but you know, another part of me did kind of wanted to cry, you know, I mean, I love my kids, but I, I guess I'm a mean parent. But this is the first time in my life that one of my kids has outright told me that they hate me, and I've been told, I don't have teenagers yet, but I'm told that as my kids get older, they may, there may come a time when, when my teens may, may not be as outwardly um, open with their love for me, but I've been forewarned. But I realized that my four-year-old was wrestling with this concept of complex emotions, these complex emotions, this idea of good hate or happy anger. And I realized that hate was not the correct word choice for my four-year-old. He was trying to articulate something else. What he was trying to say is that he did truly love me, but he didn't hate me. He truly loved me, but the word he was searching for was he was angry or he was frustrated. He loves me, but he gets angry at me too. He has a loving anger. Wow. It's pretty deep for a four-year-old. But he sees it. When I was a child, I remember my parents teaching me that anger, that anger and aggression were bad things. My parents were not pacifists in any way, shape, or form, but they taught me and my brothers that we needed to control our reactions to things. You don't want to be angry at people because anger leads to toxic relationships and emotional outbursts. If you're mad, you need to deal with those emotions. This is what I was taught. And there's nothing wrong with these lessons. I think they're correct, but I think there's more to this concept of anger. I really do. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Now, Paul is, of course, 
quoting part of Psalm 4-4 that says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. You see, we all get angry. We all get angry at times in our lives, but do we get angry for the right reasons? Or is there even such a thing as a right reason for being angry? Is it okay to have loving anger? I get angry about a lot of things. I'll be honest, I do. I may smile, but sometimes I'm angry. It's like the Hulk thing, right? I'm always angry. I get angry when I go to Meyer and I have to wait too long at the self-checkout line. So if you see me waiting in line in Meyer by the self-checkout, might not be the best time to start a conversation. Those of you who golf with me on the golf league also know that I sometimes get a little angry when I shank a shot. Or my ball mysteriously vanishes from the fairway. I'm praying for you, whoever it was. But in all seriousness, have you ever wondered if anger was a good thing or a bad thing? Have you ever been angry about something and felt like it was the right expression? That that something happened and you got angry and it was the correct response to the situation? In February of 97, Walter Hansen published the article, The Emotions of Jesus in Christianity Today. And in this article, Hansen said, and I quote, The gospel writers paint their portraits of Jesus using a kaleidoscope of brilliant emotional colors. Jesus felt compassion. He was angry, indignant, and consumed with zeal. He was troubled, greatly distressed, very sorrowful, depressed, deeply moved and grieved. He sighed, he wept and sobbed, he groaned, he was in agony, he was surprised and amazed, he rejoiced very greatly and was full of joy, he greatly desired and he loved. In our quest to be more like Jesus, we often overlook his emotions. Jesus reveals what it means to be fully human and made in the image of God. His emotions reflect the image of God without any deficiency or distortion. I'm going to say that again. His emotions reflect the image of God without any deficiency or distortion. When we compare our own emotional lives to his, we become aware of our need for a transformation of our emotions so that we can be fully human as he is. End quote. Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. Jesus was a man without sin. That means that Jesus never sinned in the eyes of God. But repeatedly in Scripture, repeatedly in Scripture, we find the gospel writers talking about Jesus getting angry. So today we're going to take a look at one of the things that miffed our Messiah. It is also something that frustrates many of us, myself included. One of the things that took Jesus to his boiling point was hypocrisy. The Gospels provide no shortage of uh, illustrations on hypocrisy. The trick is not finding a place where Jesus gets mad at hypocrites. The challenge is slimming down the selection. Hypocrisy repeatedly took Jesus to his boiling point. Surprisingly enough, though, it was not the people that Jesus came to minister to that infuriated Jesus the most. Instead, it was the people who called themselves religious that lit the fire of Jesus' anger. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And so right from the beginning, Jesus is clear that his mission field is not the righteous people. It's not the righteous people. Instead, it's the people who are in need of God's saving grace. 
And this is a good thing because it is the religious people and the devout Jews that took Jesus from calm teacher to angry preacher. Jesus did not yell at the people he taught on the hillside. It was the people that gathered in the synagogues, the people who gathered in the worship spaces that sent our Savior's blood a-boiling. Let me share a brief encounter that Jesus had in the synagogue um, with religious people to, to demonstrate what I mean. And so Mark, from, from Luke 13, one Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. There was an exclamation point. I wasn't yelling at you. It's in there. And then he touched her, and instantly she could stand up straight. How she praised God. Right away we see Jesus' mission field, a woman in the, at the synagogue who was crippled by an evil spirit. But don't get too hung up on this evil spirit talk. At this time, mental illness, physical defects, and a variety of other issues were believed to be connected to evil spirits. Whether it was a demon or a defect, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Jesus healed her, and the leader of the synagogue was upset because of what Jesus did. And so the encounter goes on. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days a week for work, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, but not on the Sabbath. Understand that the leader of the synagogue was not a bad person. The religious leaders of the time get a really bad rap, but he wasn't a bad person. The religious leader of his time was responsible for overseeing the synagogue and to be the local interpreter of the law of Moses, the law that said you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. If you worked on the Sabbath, you didn't honor God, and you were breaking one of the Ten Commandments, and this was a really big deal. If you remember, a few months ago, we did a mini-series on Sabbath-keeping and how important it was to keep the Sabbath because honoring the Sabbath was in line with not committing murder and not stealing and not worshiping false gods. This was a big deal. The leader of the synagogue was genuinely upset that Jesus broke the Sabbath laws. He healed this woman on a Sabbath day. In his defense, he even offered the people a solution. Here's a way you can get healed and honor the Sabbath. Come on a different day of the week for your healing and then keep the Sabbath holy. Follow the rules that are placed before you. It's at this point that Jesus gets angry, and he doesn't get angry at the leader for offering a different option. Jesus reaches his boiling point because of the hypocrisy that he sees in this leader of the synagogue. And so it goes on, and he goes on like this, but the Lord replied, you hypocrites! Exclamation point. Each of you works on the Sabbath day! Exclamation point. Don't you untie your own ox and your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath day and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? Upward inflection because it's a question mark. My English teacher would be proud. This shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. Sometimes we forget that exclamation points actually mean and indicate emotion and loudness of the speaker. 
Jesus is yelling at the synagogue leader and he is emotionally upset. Jesus is angry at this two-faced double standard because double standards took Jesus to his boiling point. Jesus was not upset about the specific Sabbath law at this point. Jesus was not upset about the leader telling the people to come back on a different day for healing. Jesus was not even as angry about being called out on the Sabbath law. Jesus was upset because the person that called him out didn't practice what they preached. It's as though um, Jesus is saying, you have the gall to tell me not to heal on the Sabbath because it breaks the Sabbath law when you break the Sabbath law every week. Unacceptable. Jesus is telling the religious leader that you can't tell someone that they're not honoring God in a specific way when you don't truly honor God in that way. It would be similar to me telling you not to eat donuts because they'll make you fat while I'm eating a donut. Maybe not the right analogy because the synagogue leader was actually talking about a fundamental concept, a fundamental concept of the spiritual reality of the current religious culture. The Ten Commandments were a pivotal part of the culture. So let me put it in kind of a more modern context to illustrate because Jesus is calling out a synagogue leader, not the worshipers. He's calling out the synagogue leader, not the worshipers. It would be like me telling you as a pastor that God requires, not expects, requires you to read the Bible regularly, and I never read the Bible. It would be like me teaching you as a pastor that tithing is an essential spiritual practice, but not tithe myself. It would be like me saying that small group life is an important spiritual practice for your nature and nurture as a disciple of Jesus Christ, but not be in a small group myself. It would be like teaching you an expectation of our faith and not living it out in my own life. It would be me expecting a specific standard from you that I don't expect from myself. When Jesus saw the leader of the synagogue It took Jesus to his boiling point. Hypocrisy, double standards, the epitome of do as I say, but not as I do. Double standards took Jesus to his boiling point. But this is not the only time that Jesus got after the uh, religious people of his day. Repeatedly, he called them hypocrites. And Matthew 23 gives us a gruesome reality of Jesus' anger at the religious leaders and their hypocrisy. Matthew 23, starting in verse 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. He's talking to the crowds and his disciples now. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. They wear robes with extra-long tassels. They, and they love to sit at the head tables of banquets and in the seats of honor of the synagogues. They love to receive the respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. And they love to be called reverend, I mean rabbi. That was not a slip. I intentionally said that. Jesus continues his thought process of double standards of hypocrisy. However, this time he's talking to the crowd of disciples and followers. Instead of yelling at the religious leaders, he's talking to the people, and he's not angry yet. 
Instead, he's telling the people what is wrong with the religious leaders. Jesus will quickly become mad as he addresses this flamboyant fiction of these leaders. Because another boiling point for Jesus is flamboyant fiction. Jesus is teaching the people to stay away from the hypocrisy. The words that the teachers and interpreters are saying are essential to hear and to live out in their lives. But Jesus says, don't do what they say. Don't just do what, no, do what they say, but don't act like them. They live lies of flamboyant fiction. Everything they do is for show. Listen to them, but don't model your lives after them because they are living a lie. Jesus goes on to talk about the other ways that they live a lie, and Jesus begins to call out the religious leaders in Matthew 23. Again, we find the exclamation points all over the place as Jesus reaches his boiling point, and he starts to get emotional, and he starts to get loud, and he starts to yell about these religious leaders. He shouts, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, exclamation point. Six times, six times in short succession, Jesus calls out the teachers and religious leaders. Jesus has reached his boiling point again. Then Jesus paints a picture of their spiritual lives. It's not a pretty picture at all, but it's a real picture of what Jesus sees as he looks at the hypocrisy of the people who call themselves faithful followers of God. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, exclamation point. For you are like whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs. Get an image. Whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy, and lawlessness. Let this settle in for just a minute. Jesus is mad. His anger and frustration come through in his words, but so does his love for us. I know that's hard to see and hear sometimes, but sometimes it takes greater love to tell the truth. Hear the anger in Jesus' voice, but also hear the love as well because Jesus is not just saying that they're doing it wrong. He's also telling the people in the crowd how they are called to do it right. Let me reread it to you. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. When the outside you, when the outside of a faithful follower doesn't match the inside, Jesus says that you are nothing more than a whitewashed tomb. What took Jesus, point, Jesus to his boiling point quicker than anything else was people living a life contrary to what they believe on the inside, when the outside doesn't match the inside. Jesus reaches his boiling point when we begin to play church. Playing church is not a new idea. You see, in the Gospels, the, the religious leaders often played church. They dressed up and said all the right words. They made all the proper motions. They lifted their hands in praise and worship when the band played but they were whitewashed tombs. It was all a facade. 
It was a fake outward expression of faith. Who they were on the inside was something else entirely. Jesus called them hypocrites. Over and over again, Jesus called out the religious leaders, the religious people who lived fake lives of faith. Maybe a better analogy for our culture today is, is the walking dead, alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. Hypocrisy took Jesus to his boiling point, and Jesus got angry about his hypocrisy, and he called people out on it. And there's a lesson to be learned in, here, in this, because it's one thing to know what made Jesus mad, but it's another thing to take what you know and use that information to better your own faith life. So now that we know that hypocrisy took Jesus to his boiling point, how do we remove hypocrisy from our own lives? Because the last thing we want to hear from our Savior is you are a whitewashed tomb, right? Most of you know that I've had a diverse background. Um, I've been in the military, I've been an industrial worker, I've been a public school teacher, but a crucial part of my life pre-Pastor Tim and post-Pastor Tim that I've, that I've lived through is developing this thing that I like to call a transparent faith. What it means is that my faith is transparent. What you see on the outside is what I am on the inside. Sometimes, as many of you know, I may be a little rough around the edges, but that's because I'm a work in progress too. But when it comes to my faith life, I am intentionally all about glass walls and not brick walls. Who I am, because of who I am on the outside doesn't match who I am on the inside. I'm in big trouble, and people see right through the facade. They can see right through it. And you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool God. God knows who you are in your heart, even if you try to hide it from the world. My point is, I want to share with you just, just for a moment one of the, the verses that is most important to, to, to my personal life of faith, something that has helped me reconcile the hypocrisy in my life. And that, that scripture that I want to share with you, it's just a couple of verses, and it comes from the, or the epistle of James, chapter 1. And James says this, But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. This is one of my key verses in my life. The man in the mirror is what I like to call it. If you talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk, then you're only fooling yourself. If you know what to do but choose not to do it, or if you hear God calling you to choose to be something or to follow him in a specific way and you choose not to, it's like you look in the mirror and you see the presented image and you walk away and you forget who you are. What this passage is saying is that the outward face that you think you are showing the world is not the reality of who you are. The outward face that you present is not the reality of who you are. I have breaking news for you. The wonderful family that you show people on Facebook, everyone knows that's not the real family. Because we only put the good stuff out front for everyone to see. We don't show the reality of who we are. Because that's what we do. The same is true in our life of faith. When our inward faith doesn't match our outward presentation. We're in trouble. 
Hypocrisy took Jesus to his boiling point. Whitewashed tombs is what he called those of us who are faithful followers who find a discrepancy between what our inside is and what our outside presentation is. But there's hope for all of us hypocrites because we are all hypocrites at some point in our lives. And that hope is that we have a choice that we can choose to be transparent in our faith. Choose transparent faith in your life. Tear down the brick walls and replace them with glass. It's not as hard as you might think. All it requires is for us to begin to align our internal beliefs with our external presentation and expression of our faith. Ask yourself, what is it that God wants from you? What is it that you believe that God desires from your life and calling? What does it look like to be a faithful follower? And then examine how you live your life. Do they match? If not, then you can choose a transparent faith. If you believe, as I do, that God expects us to live our lives in the world with a different standard, placing God first and not ourselves, but live as though you're the center of the universe, there's a dissidence there. Easy solution. Easy to say, hard for some of us to do. Start putting God first in a few things. If you believe, as I do, that God expects us to continually grow in our faith through engaging with scripture, prayer, and small group life, but, do not, but choose to not read your Bible regularly, pray, or be involved in a, a group of some kind, then there's a dissonance there and an easy solution. Dust off your Bible, start reading it, pray a little bit in your life, and form or join a life group. I could go on and on with all of the different things that you could do, but the point is, if what you believe on the inside doesn't match what you live out on the outside, there's a dissonance there. And choose glass instead. And let your inner self shine through to the outer world. Let people see the real you. Let people see your real faith. And I know the danger, because I live it myself, when the real me comes out, sometimes I'm too blunt. Sometimes I offend people. Sometimes I say things that I later regret because I'm rough around the edges on the inside. But I'm authentically me and I'm transparent and what you see on the outside is what you see on the inside because that's who I am. And that's the face we want to show the world because even if we're rough on the outside, we're not hypocrites and if we're not hypocrites, we're not whitewashed tombs. Because here's the key to this whole thing. The place that you really grow in your life of faith is in here, in your heart. It doesn't matter what you do on the outside. It's all about what you are on the inside. You don't grow by actions that demonstrate something that's not connected to an inner truth. Growth starts on the inside. And if you're not transparent between who you are on the inside and what you show on the outside, then you're not going to actually grow in your faith. And that's something that I think we're all striving for. We're all striving to grow. We're all striving to be what God has called us to be, what Christ has loved us to be. Does who you are on the inside match who you are on the outside? It's a deep question. Do you live a transparent faith in the world? What would it look like if you lived 
transparently, and who you were on the inside was what people saw on the outside. Let's pray. God, we come before you today knowing full well that sometimes we have been nothing more than whitewashed tombs. We have been hypocrites and have failed to display our true faith on the outside. Lord, we know, we know that you, with you there is always hope. There's always grace and there's always mercy. Give us the strength and the courage to tear down the brick walls of our lives and to replace them with transparency. Let our inside faith in you be visible on the outside. Let your son Jesus' anger never fall on us as we strive to live out the faith in you that we claim. It is in his name, Jesus' name, that we pray and everyone said, amen.